If you would please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Our lesson is going to come from the end of the book of Acts. But before we get there, I do want to read a, a little section from 2 Corinthians 11. As Paul, I think begrudgingly, this is not something he wants to do, but he uh, in some ways boasts. He boasts about his weaknesses. He boasts about his struggles. He boasts about the things that have been hardships in his life and in his ministry because he is being criticized, attacked, condemned, and rejected because people are finding uh, others who they think might be a better apostle or someone who they could listen to instead of Paul. And so Paul has to establish some credibility. And so he's going to boast. And boasting is actually something that uh, there, was, there was a way to do it in Greco-Roman world. Boasting was something that you didn't want to come across as arrogant, and so there were some strategies for how to boast in such a way that you showed yourself to be a, poor, poor, a person of importance and relevance, but that you didn't quite rub people the wrong way in, in doing that. And it was, it was an art in order to do. But one thing that you didn't generally boast of was your failures and your weaknesses and your struggles. You would boast of your successes, you would boast of the things that you've been able to accomplish and do, but you wouldn't really boast about, say, being shipwrecked three times or something like that. You wouldn't boast about the times that people rejected you and beat you. So what Paul is going to do is he's going to boast, which he says clearly he doesn't want to do. He feels foolish doing it. He's, he's imitating a foolish person by boasting. But he's going to boast not in the thing that you think he's going to boast in. Like if Paul, he's an apostle, right? He could boast in his, uh, the revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus and saying, hey, how many of you guys saw the resurrected Lord, okay? How many of you did Jesus think was important enough to stop and to, to personally appear to and to commission to go out? And, like, he has some ways that he could boast. He could say, how many of you studied under Gamaliel? How many of you uh, have the education that I have? How many of you are Roman citizens? Like, he has some ways that he could, you know, regardless of who his audience is, boast in some pretty impressive ways. He's going to boast, but he's going to do so not in those ways, but he'll do so by saying, Acts, or, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. He's like, I'm about to say some insane things here, but uh, I speak as if insane. I'm more so. I'm in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Now, as I read through this list, we've just gone through a, a pretty lengthy uh, series of sermons on Acts. We've been uh, preaching on Sunday morning and Sunday night, and we've been looking at some of these things. You can, I, I can think of specific instances in Acts where each of those things he just mentioned have popped up. Uh, him being in, in imprisonment. Well, so you got Acts 16 when he was there, there in Philippi. and you, you can go through times where he was beaten without number. You can think of Lystra where he was stoned. and uh, You can think of uh, times where he was beaten by, um, in, in Acts 16, uh, before going to, to uh, the Philippian jail, he was beaten with rods. Like, you can go through and you can think of instances where you're like, okay, I wonder if that's one of the things that he's talking about because he's gone through those things. Uh, you keep reading, verse 24, he says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That's interesting, because Acts does not mention five times that that happened. So Acts does give you some glimpses of the ministry of Paul, but I bet if you sat and talked with Paul, you'd get a lot more info. Uh, Acts is a relatively short book to cover the amount of time that it covers, so it certainly doesn't cover everything. So Paul is giving us a little bit more information here that we wouldn't have just by reading Acts. And then he says in verse 25, Three times I was beaten with rods. 
So the, uh, the 39 lashes would be a Jewish beating. Uh, being beaten with rods would be more of a Roman beating. He says, once I was stoned. Okay, that's Lystra. I think, I think we know which one that one is. Uh, three times I was shipwrecked. Now that's fascinating because uh, that's a lot of times to be shipwrecked. Like that's, that, not only has he been shipwrecked three times, by the time Paul wrote this, this is probably like the late 50s, this is going to be right around Acts 19, Acts 20, right? Maybe the beginning of Acts chapter 20. That means this is before he's arrested in Jerusalem. What that means is that the shipwreck we're going to talk about here in a little bit in Acts chapter 27 hasn't happened yet. So the, the main point is, if you're ever in a boat and you see Paul get on board, get out. Like, it's, it's not going to work out well for you. But So we know of at least four shipwrecks that Paul is in. Uh, he mentions three of them here. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, and dangers in the wilderness, dangers in, on the sea, uh, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardships through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then notice verse 28. Apart from such external things, there are the daily pressures on me of concern for all the churches. He's like, not only do I have all of these external struggles that I have to face and, and struggle with and, and battle with daily, there stays in my mind this constant concern and love I have for the church. Could you imagine going through all of that and then getting a letter that the first church that, that you uh, were working with has fallen away and doesn't believe in Jesus anymore? You're like, I just, like that, I think that's one of the reasons that Paul was up late at night. And, and you see that come across in his letters. He worries that he labored and toiled in vain because the man is working and he's laboring and he's toiling and he's struggling and he's suffering and he's doing it for the faith of these churches. And then when these churches, uh, you know, they, when, when the church at Galatia, for example, starts turning to a different gospel, he's like, no, don't do that. You know, for so many reasons, don't do that. Uh, you can see that Paul so genuinely cares about them that he's willing to suffer immeasurably. And then when they throw all of that away to turn to a different God or a different uh, a gospel or to turn back to their former way of life, it causes them so much concern and angst and turmoil. And so he says that's one of the things that keeps him up daily. You know, it, it's fascinating while Paul is in prison in Philippians chapter 4, he says, Be anxious in nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving in your hearts, let your requests be made known to God. And I think that's a beautiful verse and something that, that we should take to heart and try to practice. But sometimes things like that are easier said than done. And I think that Paul actually is a really good and remarkable example of that. But you can also learn from passages like this that it's not always easy. Like, there's no doubt that he struggled with anxiety and concern or, or uh, you know, the, the pressure of wanting the churches to stay faithful was something that kept him up at night. And so you, you read through all of this, and I just think it's interesting. We have talked about so many struggles that Paul has faced throughout Acts. Here you get his firsthand personal account of some of them. Uh, instead of someone telling you about Paul, Paul's actually giving you a list of some of the things that he thinks about, some of the things that have weighed on him daily. And not only are, that, are those the external persecutions and hardships and difficulties, but even the concern that he has uh, for the Christians. So now, having read that, I want to go to Acts chapter 27. 
And most of our lesson is going to come from Acts chapter 28. But in Acts chapter 27, we uh, get Paul on a ship heading to Italy. Uh, he's going to go to Rome. He's going there because he's going to uh, appear before Caesar. Uh, that never happens in Acts, by the way. Uh, Acts ends before that takes place. Acts ends with Paul pe preaching without hindrance uh, the gospel in, in Rome. And so Acts takes us from Jerusalem to Rome, the gospel starting with the Jews and ending up at the capital of the most powerful city, the most powerful empire in the ancient world, and the gospel there is thriving. Uh, and so it's the story of that journey of the gospel. But in Acts chapter 27, Paul is on the way, and it's just hardship after hardship. We've seen Paul delivered quite a few times throughout Acts. We've seen him delivered mostly from people and from persecution, whether he's being lowered in a basket to escape a city or uh, whether he is having to, you know, being stoned and dragged out of a city, then he gets up and goes on. And it's like we've seen him be able to overcome these things, but we haven't yet seen a lot of uh, non-human hindrances to him. Things like shipwrecks and storms or things like snake bites. Uh, you know, what we get right here at the end of Acts is just a reminder there are other things that also are making these journeys difficult. It's not always just the people. So like, you know, Luke hasn't spent a lot of time talking about shipwrecks. Paul mentions that I've already gone through three of them. So I think the reason these types of passages are important is not just to say it happened this one time, but it's like, remember, there are so many unexpected things that pop out that you don't, I mean, who thinks about a snake bite when you're out evangelizing? It's like, when, you, when I think about the things that I'm going to struggle with while I'm teaching the gospel, I may think about rejection or persecution or being thrown in jail or some of those things. And right at the end, we get a reminder, sometimes there's storms. And sometimes there's snakes where you don't want them to be. Sometimes there are just unexpected things that pop out at you that you have to figure out ways to overcome. And what we see is that God has delivered Paul time and time and time again through all those other circumstances. He delivers him through these also. Um, what Jesus said earlier in Acts chapter uh, 22, or sorry, chapter 23 and verse 11, he tells Paul, take courage for as I have solemnly or for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you will witness at Rome also. So the fact that Jesus has said, you will witness at Rome, we kind of know, no matter what hardships pop up along the way, the man's getting to Rome. Uh, Jesus has already told him that. And so here we see these different unexpected uh, hardships that pop up, and we see how Paul's going to overcome them. There are a couple of interesting things about that shipwreck. Uh, one of them is that while so much adversity is happening on the ship, and they're trying to, you know, throw things overboard, Paul is like the calm, relaxed, wise prophet who is able to, to help people understand really what's going on. And he encourages people. It's been 14 days. They haven't had food or water. He says in verse 34 of chapter 27, Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for it is for your preservation, and for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. So he says, hey, let's not get overly anxious here. Uh, I can tell you what's going to happen. God has revealed this, that you're all going to be okay. It's 276 of them. He says, not a hair on one of your heads is going to perish. Let's have a meal and let's prepare for what we're about to go through. Uh, and so, verse 35, it says, having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all, and he broke it and began to eat. Um, 
If you're looking for that order of events and those words at another place throughout Luke-Acts, you'll find someone else who takes bread and blesses it and breaks it and gives it to people to eat. And that's uh, actually Jesus. Uh, We're there at the Lord's Supper. Uh, It's described in almost the exact same language here. That's not to say that that Paul is, is giving all of the the people there with him the Lord's Supper, but I do think it's a reminder that Paul is kind of carrying on some of the things that Jesus has done. Uh, Paul is in the midst of a storm, reminding people to have a meal and to give thanks to God for it, many of whom who were there on the ship wouldn't have known or believed in the God that Paul is teaching. But Paul is giving them an example of prayer and thanksgiving to God. He is uh, having them remain calm. And I would imagine for the churches reading this, who are familiar with that type of language, when you read this, you think, you know what? There are probably going to be storms in our lives, and there's going to be every reason in the world to be filled with anxiety. But when you do gather together as a church and you do take the Lord's Supper, you're able to have a peace in the presence of Jesus in the midst of the storms of life. And I can't help but think that type of of imagery is pouring off the page, especially to the later Christians who are reading these words. But Paul encourages them to have the meal. They eat the meal, verse 36. It says, all of them were encouraged and they themselves also took food. All right. So now they are still going. They end up, um, the, the ship um, is going to go down. Uh, they realize that uh, they're, they're casting off the anchors in verse 40. Uh, it says they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes and the rudders and hoisting the foresail on the wind and the heading uh, for the beach. But striking a reef where two, uh, where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground. And so there are some soldiers who were there on this ship And you know what they decide to do since the soldiers are not supposed to let any uh, criminals escape? There's 276 of them. They decide we're going to kill these criminals. Uh, And so, verse 42, the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. All right, the quickest way to make sure no one escapes this thing is just quick and swift death sentences for every one of them. Uh, The soldiers decide that, but do you remember how last week we talked about centurions? Whenever they pop up in the Bible, they're usually doing some pretty good things. Notice uh, in verse 43, but the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump aboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were brought safely to the land. So the ship is going down and they say, all right, if you can swim, start swimming. If not, grab a table, grab a plank, grab something, and we'll get everyone there. And amazingly, everyone makes it to shore. And so, uh, you, you know, this is, this is an example where we're not necessarily told that any uh, miracle happened or that God, you know, actively did anything uh, there. But... For all of them to be saved through this shipwreck uh, just screams of the divine activity, uh, that God is heavily involved in the process. He is making sure that 
Paul's message comes to pass that not the hair on any of their heads would perish, that Paul is going to be saved. So it's like the sea tries to kill them, and there's an input to that. The soldiers try to kill them, and the centurion puts an end to that. Now they get to a land, and you think, okay, good. Maybe everything's going to be safe from here on out. Think about Paul. You know, it was a shipwreck, and then the soldiers wanting to kill him, and he was delivered from both of those things. Now he's on the land, and what's going to happen? Well, this is where we get to Acts chapter 28. And this is that famous uh, snake bite scene. By the way, it's, uh, I don't know why, because there's so many stories in the Bible uh, that are like, that are incredible and that are great stories. But in the, the children's Bible storybook that we read uh, at nighttime, uh, like Oliver's favorite story that he wanted us to read so much is Paul on Malta getting, getting bit by the snake and, and shaking it off into the fire. And so this, this has a special meaning to me because I've read it 400 times from a little, from a little children's book. But uh, Acts chapter 28 and verse 1, it says, but when they had uh, been brought safely through, they found out uh, that the island was called Malta. And so uh, Malta is a relatively small island uh, uh, south of Sicily, um, you know, on the way to Italy. Uh, if you, you go up north from there, you'll get to Italy. Um, and it says, And the natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain uh, that had set uh, in because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. So it's like they see this shipwreck happen. And the natives of the land are extremely kind and they're hospitable and they welcome them and they get a fire going for them so that they could warm up. Now, one thing that's interesting about that is you see right there in verse 2, my translation says the natives. And if you look at verse 4, it says when the natives uh, saw, all right, so that word natives, it's used twice there. That's not the word that, uh, that, that I would translate as natives. Some of your Bibles might actually have a different word there the word barbarian. That's very, that's literally what the Greek word is. It's a, you know, barbarian is a Greek word. Uh, and it came, it has to do with uh, the language that people speak. And basically a barbarian is the word that's used for someone who doesn't speak Greek. Uh, someone who is not a native Greek and someone who doesn't speak the language. And so um, I think it, it, I've, I've read before that it has to do with basically, they just sound like, they sound like they're speaking gibberish, just bar, 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 bar. And so that's kind of where the word barbarian came from. Uh, so anyway, barbarian is someone who Paul's going to have a hard time communicating with. In fact, all of these people are going to have a hard time communicating. And that's one thing that pops up when you read these 10 verses of them on Malta. There's very little communication that takes place between the groups. There's acts of kindness, uh, but you don't really have a record of like Paul preaching the gospel to them. Uh, you have uh, some of their misunderstandings we're told about, and you have some of the kind deeds that they do for one another. They are extremely kind and hospitable and generous to Paul. Paul, in return, is kind and he, he heals and he does a lot of wonderful things for them. But it's like, it's a beautiful relationship there, but it's not really one that's uh, founded on, on verbal communication, or at least it doesn't read that way in the text, and they are called barbarians a couple of times. But one of the things that's fascinating about that um, is that, uh, just quickly look with me at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, just I guess to give you a, a, a little look at how the word barbarian is sometimes used. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 11 uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 11. This is Paul talking about tongue speaking. And uh, basically, it's important 
if you're going to have a, someone speaking in tongues, to also have an interpreter. Otherwise, it's not going to make any sense. It's not going to be able to encourage or uplift anyone. Uh, and so you want it to be encouraging and edifying, so make sure that there's someone there to interpret. If no one understands the tongues, then there's not a good point to the tongues. And that's what Paul says. Uh, he says in verse 11, If then I do not know the meaning of the tongue or the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So the word barbarian, you can see it even in that passage. That's Paul's example of when you don't understand the language someone is speaking. And so throughout Acts, there are a couple things right here at the end, right before he gets to Rome, that are unique. One is the difficulties he's having aren't so much from persecution, but they are from unexpected outside forces like storms on snakes. Uh, but the other thing is we finally see Paul reach barbarians. Most of the places he's gone to, he's been able to communicate freely with the people. Paul knows several languages, and he's been able to, to communicate, uh, whether he's uh, speaking in Aramaic or the Hebrew dialect or uh, in, uh, in Greek. But when he gets here, well, he's, he's dealing with barbarians. Uh, but one thing that Paul wants us to know, according to Colossians uh, chapter 3, is that... Uh, in baptism, there's a unification that takes place, and all of the different things that divide people in the world, those things become united in Christ. And so uh, there are a couple of passages that have a similar format to this, but in Colossians chapter 3, he describes uh, this being a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. And so we've seen those pop up in Acts. Roman, and, or sorry, uh, circumcised and uncircumcised, and then barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. And so even barbarians are included in this list. But you have like Greeks, you have Jews, and you even have barbarians and Scythians and, and slaves and free and all of that. And so what you get right at the end of the book of Acts is a brief look at the barbarians, uh, at the people who aren't Greeks or Jews, uh, who are kind of a culture unto themselves. And we see uh, the good news of Jesus uh, reaching there as well. And so Acts chapter 28 continues. Uh, they're showing kindness to, the, to those who have come ashore. Verse 3, Paul is helping. Uh, Paul doesn't just let them, you know, do all the work for the fire. He's actually joining in and helping out the natives. And it says, And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself to his hand. And so a viper comes out and doesn't just bite him. The word that's used is it fastens itself on there. And they see in verse 4, when the barbarian saw the creature hanging from his hand, so he picks it up and the thing's not letting go, uh, that removes any doubt that the thing, it, it wasn't a non-venomous accidental little bite. The thing latched onto him. And he lifts up his hand, it's holding onto him. And so uh, the barbarians watch this and they begin to say to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. And so one thing that we'll, you'll notice here is uh, you will see in this section right here a bad thing happen and a good thing happen. You'll see Paul get bit by a snake. That's the bad thing. And then you'll see Paul miraculously not suffer any ill consequences. That's the good thing. And the barbarians who are watching, they both times 
attribute a theological explanation of it. And both times, their theological explanation is really, really bad. Uh, these are people who uh, they don't have a great understanding of, uh, of the, the truth that Paul has and teaches and brings. And so they're kind of thinking about things on their own. And the first thing they're thinking is, wait a minute, he just got bit by a snake. Why would he get bit by a snake? Well, he must be evil or something. Bad things happen to bad people. That's the way it should be. And uh, so justice is not going to allow him to get off the boat and go escape somewhere. So justice is going to make sure that, uh, that he suffers for this and that he dies for this. Um, now, the word justice in some of your Bibles uh, might be capitalized. And some of your Bibles might have a little footnote there, actually. Mine is not capitalized. But some of your Bibles, uh, depending on your translation, you either capitalize the word justice or you don't capitalize it. The reason why, and the reason there's a footnote there in some of your Bibles, is to explain that this is a likely reference to a goddess, uh, the daughter of Jupiter, who uh, was in charge, basically, of making sure that vengeance and justice was met out. And so this might not just be like, in general, the idea of justice won't let them get away, but actually a proper noun, justice, isn't going to let them get away with this. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's at least a possibility when it comes to the interpretation here. But the idea, kind of like Job's friends, is if a bad thing happened, he must be a bad guy. So that's their first theological mistake right there. The second one is uh, in verse 5. Paul shakes the creature off into the fire, uh, and Paul suffers no harm. So verse 6, when they were expecting that he was about to swell up and suddenly fall down, but after they waited a long time, they're just watching him. Like, <laughs> that's, I wonder what Paul's doing while everyone's waiting for him to die. He's just sitting there by the fire, I guess. But they're all staring at him, and they're waiting for him to fall over. And after a long time, nothing unusual happened. And they changed their minds and began to say, theological mistake number two, he is a god. Uh, so the first explanation is, well, the gods are going to kill him because he must be evil. But when he didn't die, well, then he himself must be a god. And uh, I think there's somewhere in the middle there where, where Paul wants them to, to land instead. But what's fascinating, and this is one of the things that you know, the idea of them being barbarians might, might come into play because this has happened a couple of times in Acts already. Um, there have been a couple of times where, uh, like, for example, when Peter goes to Cornelius to teach him the gospel. In Acts chapter 10, it says, when Peter entered, this is Acts 10, 25, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter, rising him up, said, stand up, for I too am just a man. And then they begin to speak. But like Cornelius sees him and wants to pay him the honor with which you would pay a god. And Peter's like, absolutely not. No, don't do that. Uh, and, and a little bit later in Acts chapter 14, uh, after Paul has uh, healed somebody, it says the crowds, verse 11, saw what Paul had done, and they raised their voice, saying in the uh, Lyconian language, the gods have, come, have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, uh, because he was the chief speaker. 
And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and they wanted to offer sacrifice with these crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, saying, Man, why are you doing these things? And they go and they start speaking, saying, Wait, this is, this is a really bad idea. Um, so two times there have been people who have uh, been either considered gods or worshipped as gods. Paul himself was one of them. They thought he was Hermes. Uh, and what Paul did is immediately he said, stop that. And he, he spoke to them and he communicated with them. Um, here in Acts 28, it says uh, they began to say that he was a god. And then, and then it doesn't say anything else. And so I'm wondering... I'm assuming if they're trying to worship Paul, Paul's saying, you know, he's coming up with some way to indicate, no, don't do this. Uh, but he can't really preach a sermon to them right now. Uh, and so he, uh, you don't get a sermon from this. You just get the fact that they've made this mistake and now they've made this mistake. And Paul is, uh, is I'm sure, trying to correct it as best he can, although we don't actually have a record of that. Um, what we do have in verse 7 is a story about uh, one man who Paul ends up healing, and then they start coming to Paul, you know, in droves, and, and he begins healing a lot of them. So in verse 7, it says, Now in the neighborhood of that place uh, were lands belonging to a leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days, or he showed hospitality for three days. And so, again, it's like throughout this whole scene, uh, the people of Malta, you know, who I'm a, you wouldn't have expected a lot from like this barbarian, non-Greek, non-Jewish island of people. You know, you'd, you would think they're going to be savages or something. But what's incredible is these people are shipwrecked there, and you see hospitality in the most unexpected places. And you see that time, and, and again throughout this, they're kindling fires, trying to keep them warm, trying to give them a safe passage. Someone accepts Paul into, uh, into his home and, and allows him to stay uh, for three days. And uh, verse 8, And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted, afflicted with a recurring fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, laid hands on him and healed him. And after this happened, the rest of the people of the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. Well, that's kind of like what people in the surrounding cities of Galilee would do when they heard about Jesus. They would bring their sick and infirms to him. And so Paul has now... He's done this type of, and Jesus has done this in, in the, the Holy Lands and in Palestine area. And then you have Paul and Peter, you know, doing this uh, on their missionary journeys. And now even in barbarian cities, you have the blessing of the presence of Jesus. Uh, there, through the hand of Paul, being able to heal and being able to bring peace and affliction to, uh, peace, uh, to the afflicted uh, there in the city. And so, verse 10, they honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. And so they showed respect to them. They gave them what they needed. And Paul sets sail, uh, and he ends up making it to, uh, to Rome. And so it's, it's a really neat story of something that happens on an island full of barbarians where it seems that communication is difficult, but you have people there who have the best of intentions. And they show kindness and hospitality to Paul, and Paul in return is able to, uh, to help them 
and, and bring uh, the, the healing and goodness and the reign of God in some ways to that culture as well. And there are questions that I have about this. You know, there are questions I have about, uh, what about their faith? You know, what about, what about the, the name of the Lord Jesus? Like, do they come to believe in him? We, we don't know. Uh, we don't know a lot from this story about what this leads to, or if people end up learning the language and going back there, or what about speaking in tongues? Uh, you know, I, I, I know that's a, that's a gift. This seems like it'd be a useful place for it. Uh, like, there, we have these questions that could pop into our heads that we don't have answers to, but I do think you can learn some lessons here about the idea of showing the goodness of Jesus to people no matter where you are or where they come from, no matter what difficulties you may have in the actual evangelism and preaching, you can still act like Jesus in the presence of people. And I think that's what Paul does. I think Paul goes there, and even if there's a communication barrier that's hard to overcome, he can still show them who Jesus is by his actions and by his deeds. And they're able to see uh, what otherwise they wouldn't have been able to see before. And I think perhaps that's a lesson that we could learn as well. Um, you know, I've, I've heard it said before, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. And I, and I think that's, that's, there's, there's value in that. Although I would also say, um, using words is actually kind of central to it. So, so, so use words, you know, that's, that's part of the whole thing. That's in the Bible a lot. But I like the idea of even if you can't use words, you can still show people the good news of Jesus. You can still show people the goodness of Jesus. And I think that's something as his body on earth we're called to do. And you see Paul doing it uh, here as well, right before he gets to Acts, where he is, or I mean gets to Rome, where he is able to, to preach and teach, and the book of Acts comes to a conclusion. So uh, to me, I enjoy uh, the story, and, and I hope that, uh, that as you read it, you're able to see, like, the different ways in which the gospel reaches different people in different places in different avenues uh, and and really acts covers all of your bases from jerusalem jews to jews who were scattered abroad to uh greek citizens to to romans uh, to the rome even to barbarians on an island out there by themselves you see how jesus still lives to interact in all of these places and uh, i believe still does so today if there's anyone here tonight who would like uh, to name Jesus as Lord of your life, uh, be baptized into Christ, have your sins washed away, and live with him from this day forward. Please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.